the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by M. Scott Ford, who is a CTO and Chief Code Whisperer at Corgi Bytes and co-host of the Legacy Code Rocks podcast. Scott Ford, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, thanks for having me. So given your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software? Ooh, that's a good question. A few common characteristics. I would say, you know, just easy to understand and easy to change. I think that's the very concise, basic definition there. <laughs> and when you say easy to change, what do you think are some attributes of that or think like ways that makes it easy to change for a developer? Are there some common patterns there? One would be that it's, you know, that it's, it's tested. You know, I feel like, you know, there's a sufficient safety net for making a change safely. Another would be that, you know, the complexity is low enough that you can, you can make a change without feeling like you're going to, you know, break something else. What is your take on the metaphor technical debt? It's what we're stuck with. I don't know that I'm a huge fan. I feel like it does get, it does get used a lot. I think it's, it's useful to explore other metaphors that, that might work for the audience that you're working with. Um, this is something I, I picked up from um, Declan Whelan a few years ago. He was exploring the idea of trying to find the right metaphor for like the context you're in. So like, you know, like a context sensitive metaphor or whatnot. So one, one I had learned from him was wealth. So like kind of flipping the debt around instead of thinking about how much debt you have, like think of how much wealth you've got built into your system. I think health is another good one. So like using our body as a metaphor for like, you know, how healthy the, the software system is. I feel like that's a sometimes a more natural fit for, for people, especially as, you know, if you might be of a certain age and your body is kind of betraying you in terms of it used to be a lot easier to move around when you were younger, you know, you should be exercising more, but you're not. The The idea that, you know, the things that you're supposed to be doing are, you know, to kind of make the later years in life more pleasant, right? Like it's, you're not really deriving much benefit now, right? And I feel like there's a lot of similarities there with a lot of the technical practices that we know we should be doing. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I've had a, f- a few guests and people I've talked to that try to compare things to, let's say, like maintenance of a car, I think comes up as one thing. I remember that was discussed even with some of our employees a few years ago as a way to try to talk with our clients about like, well, we need to do this regular scheduled maintenance type things. And this may might make it easier for them to understand why we can't just keep adding new features. We have to take care of the system so that the car runs. Or this is interesting, the idea of maybe talking about like the body as like another way to do that. And our bodies, for better or worse, they do deteriorate over time and and all things come to an end. So... I'm having now like an existential crisis right now while I'm hosting this podcast. I, I also like built systems. So like, you know, like houses, physical structures. I feel like there's a lot of similarities there, and especially in terms of like, for the most part, there's a lot of energy that goes into creating it. And then there's not a lot of energy that gets put into it after that. But you can't just let it sit, right? Like you, there, there are things that do need to happen to keep that a, a functional system. I've been inspired by the work of... Um, I'm totally blank on the author's name, but there's a book called How, How Buildings Learn. 
Um, and there's a BBC video series kind of based on that idea as well. You know, it was almost as if like the content is around like refactoring a building, right? <laughs> but I think like one thing that's that's really neat in that context is that like thinking about tooling. And if you were to buy a house that was built in the 1800s and you wanted to make some improvements to it, you wouldn't go to the hardware store and find the 1800s section in the hardware store and, and limit yourself to tools from 1800s. You would just get the latest tools. You get the latest materials. But I feel like uh, on a lot of software development projects, we limit ourselves to the older tools. I and mean, there are a lot of teams that I've that I've worked with over the years that seem to be of the opinion that they have to use the older tools. Like this is a Java six project that has to be stuck on Java six. Like we can't we can't upgrade. Like you know, like well, well, why not? Or IDE is you know got two thousand five in its name. Like we, we we can upgrade that. Like we can you know it would be more pleasant to work on this project if we did even. It's interesting in thinking about how, you know, there's always those upgrade projects that need to happen that sometimes get put off for a long time. And has it been your experience that people under or overestimate what it would take to get them to a more modern version of whatever stack that they're using outside of just rewriting it in a new platform entirely? Yeah, I think there is kind of an estimation bias that's taking place where like we're kind of either extremely underestimating how, how much, how, what it would take or extremely overestimating how much it would take. And then I think there on the other end, not enough thought is given to the, the benefits that would be derived and, and kind of, and kind of the savings. I think too many, too many teams just assume that it, it wouldn't really be that much different. So what, what's the point? I'm always curious if there's a, I know there's been a lot of, there's a lot of conversations about like rewrites and being notoriously underestimated, but I don't, I don't feel like I've had a lot of conversations about people talking about how vastly underestimate an upgrade process or not. And it, it usually seems to be the constraint tends to be, there's just not enough time or we can't prioritize it right now, maybe later. And it gets like a can that gets kicked down the road for too long. And the longer you're kicking that out and then you're just like, well, how far back do we have to go now or up do we have to go? And so it's not this like, we're not like six months or a year behind some versions. We're now like six to 10 years behind a version. And then it just becomes this like, oh shit, this is like a huge hurdle to get up through these versions. And whether there's any reality to that, I think is a whole nother concern there. But it's, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge, I think, that a lot of teams struggle with. And you know we get brought into that scenario quite a bit. And sometimes it is a lot of work and sometimes it's not. And so I think it's not a, I wish I could just give a blanket answer to that, but... I think a lot of fear is a big factor there, right? Like I feel like there are a lot of teams that they're operating out of, out of a place of fear. Like, and it's usually for a really good reason. Usually like when you start probing, you start picking away at like why the fear is there, a story will come up where it'll be like, oh, this one time we tried to upgrade, there was a, a big deployment outage. We lost a bunch of customers. A few of us got fired, you know, and it could be like no one is still on the team who went through that, but like that story is stuck with them and that it's it's still affecting their behavior. So I, I think that, you know, there's often a fair bit of that as well. The fear of uh, getting bit again, or you're carrying on that story from someone else that got bit before. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're other developers, not you, of course, discussing technical debt? Oh, I get stuff wrong all the time. I do think there's certainly a bias I have that it's worth saving because I, I like, I, I take joy in the improvement process. So I, I, f I feel like I'm vulnerable to the bias of thinking that something's worth saving when it's not. 
And so I, I feel like that's a trap that I fall into. But I feel like other developers have fallen in the opposite trap where they just, I think, you know, they overestimate how difficult it would be or how painful it would be to refine what they've got. And then they underestimate how painful it would be to build a replacement. And so they think that starting over completely from scratch will be so much easier. A few years ago, I read an article on your company blog where you described that there were makers and menders. It really resonated with me at the time and it kind of like changed some of my, my own outlook with how I would have been thinking about things. And so for our audience that have, may have not read that article before, what is the difference? Yeah. So we seen so many, so many articles and so many events and magazines even like focused on makers and maker culture and and I felt like a lot of that was really, you know, kind of building things from scratch or finding a lot of joy or just, you know, celebrating, you know, building things from scratch. I found myself wishing that there was, you know, an equivalent term for people who enjoyed breathing new life into things and, and improving things, repairing things, uh, remodeling things. And so kind of as a counterpoint to maker kind of settled on, on mender. I would say like some of the characteristics that we came up with were really enjoying the kind of like that long tail taking something that's 80% built and then finishing the other 20% of the way where I feel like a lot of makers, they really drive most of their joy from getting something to the 80% point. And then kind of the grind of refining it from there is really hard for them. And they just want to move on. Like they're kind of mentally done. They, they feel like they've solved the big problems. They got to explore the blank page and then move on. Whereas I also think like menders, like when approached with a blank page, menders are like, like, what do I do? I'm overwhelmed by choice. Like there's too many, there's too many things to do. Give me something to react to. And so I, you know, I think, you know, some of those personalities really come into play. I've also like, anytime I give a talk um, or anytime my business partner, Andre gives a talk, we will ask for show hands of, you know, I usually phrase the question, like who in here lights working on a project they do, they've inherited from somebody else. I'll first ask who in the room is a developer. So I can get, get a sense of that. And it's usually like between five to ten percent, sometimes less. Sometimes I don't get any hands, but the hands that do go up are very enthusiastic. So I think there are people like this out there. They're just not as it's not as common. Yeah. So I think like you know making sure that the work that that person's being asked to do is kind of kind of fits with what brings them brings them joy. You know, can help with morale. And I think that people who enjoy doing that kind of work are going to be more efficient at it. That's just some of those biases we have about like drudgery work and putting things off. If you enjoy doing it, you'll be better at it. So giving some of those tasks that, to that person, instead of just assuming that it's, it's too hard, we can't do it. I think it's interesting that you, know, you mentioned like raising your hands, like inheriting code from someone else. And then I guess my question I would always, I would be curious to ask that same audience would be who here started their first job and got to start from scratch on a brand new application, like their first ever <laughs> software development job. It's like, I think it's really rare for people to actually get to not have to work with other developers that already built something. So I think we all inherit something usually when we're starting to work in software development. But I think there's maybe there's a distinction between working on new features and you know, you're building, adding new stuff versus coming in and cleaning up and dealing with some of the stuff that's been sitting around for several years and like, you know, legacy code. That's an interesting thing. I, I remember when I read your article and it kind of just had this aha moment of being like, I've been long been plagued with the, uh, I'm not a software developer that really loves software development for building things necessarily. I always saw it as a tool. And then I think later on, like the thing that 
a lot of my career has always been jumping in and helping debug things quite a bit. And so it's usually like I enjoy the the search to try to uncover like something and, and like that can be kind of fun. And so, but yeah, every time it's like a new feature comes up or if my team's short on like people that work on a project and I'm like, oh, maybe I can help out. And I'm like, oh, do not like put me in on a new feature. Uh, like that just sounds terrifying. <laughs> and they're just like, but don't you know how to do this? And I'm like, I just put me on, like, I love to fix performance problems. Let me send me on something other sort of messy mission, but don't, don't like, so let someone else that really enjoys building new features get to do that. Cause I'm like, it's not what brings me joy. So I like, I clinged on to that mender word. And so I, I attribute a lot of my thinking over the last few years about this and clarifying some of my own positioning, even my company's positioning on having read that article. So thank you for posting that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Thanks for the feedback. So I was excited to get to chat with you about this stuff. So I want to talk a little bit more about what Corgi Bytes and your company focuses on. What do you do and what do you offer as a service? Yeah. So we focus exclusively on helping teams improve the systems that they already have. You know, our philosophy is any language, any platform, any framework, kind of basically on the assumption that the kinds of problems that older projects get themselves into, or even not so older projects, but just accumulated a mess, things have kind of ground to a halt, or whatever the metaphor you want to use, or whether it's debt or health or, or what have you. The problems that those software systems find themselves in really transcend framework and they transcend language. And the solutions to them are, are often the same. So yeah, so we we enjoy tackling projects like that, helping teams, and then eventually we hit. I would say with, with most of our clients, we kind of hit a diminishing returns point, and then we move on, and then the, the team's got it from there. But yeah, that's re- really what we enjoy doing. We've got a um, like a deep dive analysis that that we typically do when we start projects off, and then and the idea is like the results of that analysis could be taken and run with by anybody. You know, we can be the ones who are helping as well. You mentioned that some of the companies that reach out to you for your services, they maybe software development, their process kind of grinds to a halt. Do you find that there's some common scenarios or things that contribute to that happening? I feel like the, the most often scenarios, it's one that you alluded to earlier, which is just like, we'll get to this later. We don't have time to do this right now, especially for a lot of the, the smaller cleanup tasks. And I think it's especially true of, of teams that feel they have to move very quickly for whatever reason. So I feel like this is a trap a lot of startups get themselves stuck into. And in a way, I think like the way a startup kind of has to grow, I feel like it's a natural outcome. It makes sense. Like, I don't know that that a startup's necessarily doing anything wrong. I think like hitting this point is probably just a, a sign of maturity. Like you've, you've built something that people want to buy. You've grown it enough. You've, you've, you've learned from your marketplace. And in, in doing all of those experiments, you made a mess. You made a big mess. And now that mess is slowing you down. There are other contexts where like it could be an older application that were kind of like these decisions and in in experiments accumulated more slowly over time than it did in, in perhaps like, say a startup. But you, you still kind of have the same level of, of cruft that's built up and the, the same level, level of just long amount of neglect. And so like chipping away at that. And often I would say that the teams that, that come to us, the there's kind of two characteristics. One is they, they don't know where to start. Like they, they know that there's a, a big mess in front of them. Like either they've got a big ball of mud or nothing's tested, nothing's testable. They can't seem to add features anymore without breaking things. It takes them a week to deploy or you know, whatever the, their complaint may be. 
Uh, they can't add new team members. They can't seem to hire junior developers. Those are all things we've heard before. And, you know, helping them kind of transform the, that system into, into something better is something they, they know they need to do. And they kind of, they've read a lot of articles and they kind of have an understanding of what they're supposed to do, but they just, it's, it seems too big. Like the problem just seems too big to them. And, and most of the teams that come to us, they have enough, they're kind of realizing that starting over isn't really an option. They just feel stuck. Yeah, that's interesting. The we do kind of similar thing with within specific technology stacks, but you know, there's always that sounds like things that we also encounter in terms of you know it's hard for them to they know what they need to do. I think if anyone took like a couple of days and step stood back or and just said this is maybe a different way we could be approaching this thing, but it's just like well, how do there's still so many things to figure out. I'm always surprised by how often teams really just need like they have like a laundry list of things they need they know they need to take care of. But they don't know how to prioritize it in a certain way, or they or they almost just wish that someone else can come in and just give their strong recommendation or opinion for them to react to. Sometimes we can just come in and be like, "All right, let's look at that list. Here's just how we would kind of prioritize in like the order that you should divvy these things up," and then then they'll react to that. I'm like, "Well, we can't do that one until we do this one." I'm like, "All right, well, cool. We can like now we can shuffle it around for you a little bit." But it feels like sometimes it's just like they're like almost fatigued with everything that's going on. And they're just like, oh, how do I prioritize that? And as a business owner myself, like sometimes I have my own to-do list of things and I really wish I had someone that can come in and be like, just here, do it in this order. And I'm like, okay. Cause I think you fall into maybe a scenario where you're second guessing and triple guessing yourself or the team is. And I'm like, what the next important thing to focus on outside of the new features that are coming from the product team and what they're saying needs to happen next for the users. But like, we need to clean up some stuff along the way. And so Sometimes it can just be that that prioritization effort and in getting someone else's opinion. And then you're like, well, I don't think it's a, like not wanting to have ownership over it, but it is a it does seem to just have that outside voice be like, can maybe to affirm your idea or to at least help make that a little bit easier. So you can just be like, all right, just tell me what to work on next. So I can I, I can do it, but I just need someone to tell me what what two things feel like the most beneficial here. Cause I've got all these things to deal with. And it's an interesting process. And I feel on most teams that we've worked with, either the team as a whole already had a good understanding, similar to what you just said, or there was one person on the team who really had a good understanding, but they weren't getting any traction. And so there have been there have been a few people over the years who have thanked us, and then I, at least one other individual who was just really, really frustrated that it took us to get them to be listened to. You know, so anytime we anytime we find those individuals, which I think they're just menders and hiding, is really is really all they are. You know, we try to highlight that, like, you already had this knowledge internally. So, you know, lean on that person in the future kind of thing. So, I'll talk a little bit about your podcast. So, how long have you been co-hosting Legacy Code Rocks? I think since 2016. I think it's when we recorded the first episode. And what prompted that? So, Andre and I had gone to Agile 2015, and I was speaking there. And they had experimented with a track. This was before the Agile Alliance broke out and created a, an Agile technical conference. And I think this was kind of their experiment along those lines is they had a track that was you know very practitioner focused and ended up being like mostly people focusing on legacy code. So we just were having amazing conversations with people. We met a lot of, a lot of really great people and we just wanted to share those conversations. And so that, that was really kind of the idea was like, what if we took these conversations that we were kind of having in the conference hallways and 
recorded them so we could share them with others. That was kind of the genesis. And then also really wanting to really wanting to destigmatize uh, legacy code. I feel like in every other context in the English language where the word legacy is used, it's positive, right? Like my legacy, I'm going to leave a lasting legacy, you know, like, but when we talk about software systems or, or technical systems, it's a negative thing and it, it doesn't have to be. And, and I love Michael Feathers' book. We had, we've had him on the show, but he even used that negative connotation as a tool to get people to write more tests, right? Like the definition he came up with for legacy code is code without tests. Almost as if to say, you don't want to write legacy code, do you? So you better start writing more tests. <laughs> and, and like the, the code you wrote five minutes ago can be legacy under that, under that definition. So like, I just, I really wanted to really find a way to take the turn back and just, it doesn't have to be bad. Like we can, we can have fun on these things. And if you're someone who does have fun on them, you're allowed to, and you don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to feel like a, a second class developer. <laughs> a mender in hiding. Out of my own selfish curiosity as a new podcast host myself, what do you as a fellow podcast host get out of it on a regular basis? How has it impacted your day-to-day? Oh, the idea generation is, is fantastic. I try to be very careful not to inject my ideas into a show if I'm if I'm interviewing somebody, but it still happens sometimes. Like we're human. But like I really like to, for the guest to shine, right? Almost always the show will end and I'll be like, wow, that's really cool. I think I could take their idea and run with it in a different direction. Like without that conversation, I wouldn't have had that idea. And a lot of times these are people I'm familiar with their work. I've read them, you know, I've read their blog articles. I've maybe even met them at a conference. I feel like there's something special about the interview format where you do get to know their ideas a little bit better. I agree with that. And I appreciate your uh, trying to let the guests shine attitude and I sometimes wonder as a host if I'm injecting too often or sharing my own little anecdotes and stuff, and I haven't found the right balance of that. And I'm doing it like literally right now as I'm talking. I often worry I don't inject enough. So like, <laughs> it, you know, teach their own. And like, and I feel like every show has their own style. Find your style and, and do it. <laughs> right. And these things can be refined over time as well. And so, so if you're listening and you have an opinion on this for me, please let me know. <laughs> But in the meantime, I I will keep like sharing my own. And like, you know, you were saying like how you get these ideas from your guests and like you go kind of ruminate on that. And it's interesting, like one of the things that I've seen with some of even my own employees, not that they all listen to the podcast, but I've had like a couple weeks ago, someone in a one-on-one was like, what's like two things that you've learned from your podcast recently? And I was just like, that's such a, this isn't my one-on-one, but it was like such a, like, I'm like, this is, that's a good question. And like, there's like all these different things that come out of these conversations with people. Cause I almost feel like it's a way for me to get not necessarily advice, but it, it is sparking ideas on like the ways that we communicate with our clients and the ways that we can communicate as a team. Cause all these people come from all these vastly different teams and how they organize things. And it's, it's always really fascinating to see there's a lot of common threads, but there's also environments where I think in our industry where things that the people that tend to write and write blog posts or be seen on social media Sometimes they, maybe they work at really large companies and how they do things. And then you have these smaller companies that are like kind of almost like looking over there thinking, this is how we're supposed to do things too. Yet they don't have like the same, remotely the same amount of resources available at their hand to do that. And they're like, well, we need to have this whole process set up. Otherwise, we're, we're not keeping up with what New Relic or whatever is doing. And so it's just like, a is that even attainable in the first place? And so anyways, just letting the audience know that 
it's okay if you don't have this amazing automated system for how you manage your deployments. That's a great thing to maybe work towards, but yeah. And, and like, and I feel like that's, you know, that's something that you know, is a big part of my philosophy is that, you know, there, there's more than one right way to do everything. Everything is a continuum and there's no end to better is another thing. I love fixing and improving things. If you ask me to critique something, I'm going to find something wrong and I will gladly improve it for you. But that doesn't mean it's bad, right? I feel like kind of like a movie critic or an art critic, right? Like it doesn't, just because somebody had a bad thing to say about a movie doesn't even mean the movie needs to change, right? Like it, it can be, it can still be a perfectly fine movie. It can still be a perfectly fine movie to a, a large percentage of an audience. So I think, you know, be careful about, about leaning too heavily on the opinion of someone who has a voice or a platform. And I feel like every team has to find their own way. Every team has to find their own process. Every team has to find their own application of metrics. Every team needs to decide what's a good fit for them. And if you find somebody else shaming you because your team's doing it differently than the way it's written down in a book, just try to filter that out. Because if it's working for your team, it's working. Just stick with it. We'll be back with my interview with Scott in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you, yes, you, for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else someone might write a podcast review. Put it on a sticky note and stick it on your coworker's desk. I don't know. Also, if you happen to know someone that's in our industry that you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable, introduce me by sending me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Scott Ford. As a consultancy, when you work with other teams, what sort of processes have you seen work really well with in terms of like tangibly when you're dealing with, say, tactical debt or things that they know they need to clean up? Do you see that most often working where they have special, like they put them into stories for that work or do they, or do you take the approach of seeing a lot of teams, I would say sneak, I'm air quoting, sneak, sneak those into feature development as, you know, we're in this area, we need to do some refactoring. Have you seen some good practices there that have worked well for some teams? I feel like when it's a really big amount of cruft, I feel like having a special task for that is important and like allocating some budget to to getting it accomplished. And whether that's somebody on your team who's doing it or you're hiring some outside help for that, I think that's important. I also think it's important to build in the practices so that you're doing a little bit of cleanup with every feature. Cleaning up the mess needs to just be routine. Don't make it a line item because it'll get cut. You know, I feel like that's something I learned a long time ago ages ago when I would estimate all my tasks and then I would hand them over to a client and the client would then approve the work that I was about to do. I noticed that if I listed all my testing tasks separate, then the client would veto all the testing tasks. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a really wrong decision to make. And they were like, well, if you listed it separately, so I assume it's something I can say no to is the client's attitude. So I stopped listing it separately. I, st- I started thinking of it as that of just like, this is the way that I do the work. This is the way I validate to myself that it's done correctly. And so kind of baking that into kind of my definition of done, kind of my definition of completeness. So developing a definition of completeness that includes cleaning things up a little bit. So given that you're often a guest in other teams' code bases, what do you tend to look for when you step into their code base? So there are like three or four data points that we rely really heavily on. One is cyclomatic complexity or cognitive complexity, you know, whatever the, the tool you're using is going to give you. The other is churn and then code coverage. 
and duplication. So those kind of four metrics taken together across a code base can tell you a lot. It can really help kind of inform where you should be focusing your efforts or where you should not be focusing your efforts. For example, if like if a file's never changed since it was introduced, then just ignore it. Or better yet, ask yourself why is it never changed and perhaps it's dead and we can just delete it. Because I think there's a the laws of software evolution by Lehman, forget his first name, but like they're sometimes called Lehman's laws. One of them is that like any software that is being used is going to have pressure on it to change. So if if something's not changing, then perhaps it's not being used. So if you see churn that's really low in an area of the system, it could be that it's very stable. It could also be that it's not used anymore. And this is an area where I feel like almost every team we talk with, we end up making the recommendation to do some kind of analysis for what's not being used anymore, especially at the feature level. Add some kind of instrumentation to your system to evaluate what features are being used or what subsystems are being used. Let it run however long you'll need to be comfortable to feel like you're getting decent data. But if you find something that's not being used anymore, just delete it. Just get it out of the way. The biggest waste of money would be to improve something that's not being used. It's always interesting how often I find that there's a lot of code in projects where it's not been touched for a long time. And there's always that fear of deleting something that someone else wrote and not knowing what it, why it was originally there. It's always interesting. Do you... You know, you had touched a little bit on those four data points, and you said cogn- you mentioned cognitive complexity. How do you ascertain that? Yeah, so I, I use a tool to measure that. So, cognitive complexity, Sonar Cube, or Code Climate will give you that pretty easily. Psychological complexity, most other open source tools will give you that metric also pretty easily. Like, I feel like that metric just all by itself isn't all that. I mean, it does tell a story, but it doesn't let you know where you should focus your efforts. So I feel like the the other metrics are, are are more useful. Is it safe to assume that you're more often on team refactor than team rewrite? I would say like team rewrite from scratch, I'm hardly ever on. But team, we're going to end up with a rewrite <laughs> at the end of X number of months. Yeah, I'm like on that team. But I feel like sometimes like team refactor can be given the impression of like, it's going to stay exactly the same, but I, I tend to think of refactoring as a tool to make it easier to transform. So like there are new features we want the system to have, or we want features that we want to go away because they're not really useful anymore. So let's refactor so that it's easy to add those features instead of it. Let's write from scratch. So it's easy, easy to add those features. If, if that's kind of the, the difference, then yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was a safe assumption. <laughs> You touched on a little bit about, you know, when you were coming in and helping teams and you talked a little bit about some of the things you first look for, when there's some known technical debt, like let's say there's maybe next to non-existent or very little automated test coverage, what sort of recommendations do you offer those teams on how they should start to prioritize and approach that type of problem where they're going to come in and you, you may help them on filling in and making sure things are, that there is some less automated testing in their application. Yeah, test coverage is is one where I think like just doing it as you change, like forcing yourself to add it as you change things is the best way to go. Because it's it's the pieces that are changing that need it the most. The pieces that are static don't need it as much. It's it's not that there's no value having it there, because they're you know, you can't have unintended consequences. Like making a change in this part of the system could cause a cascading issue in a different part of the system. That certainly can be true. I, f- I feel like it's more rare. So adding tests in the code that you're that you're making changes to and forcing yourself to add those tests as you go. Now, 
if you're not used to adding tests, that's incredibly frustrating. And if you're working with a code base that like has 0% co- test coverage, there's going to be design decisions that are made in the code that are going to make it incredibly difficult to test. So a great technique to employ is something like uh, approval tests. That's a that's a testing strategy where you're basically running the code and then just looking at its raw output and then using that output to guide whether or not you changed anything. So like you, you try to make sure you've got a, a good enough data set to kind of fully instrument the code. And then you run that you run that data set through the code and you record the output. And it's it's a different testing strategy than than trying to like craft a bunch of like setup setup test teardown approaches, whereas you just have one data set, you run it through the code, you record the output, and then when you make a change, you do the same thing again and the output better not be any different. And that can that can be a great way to get a lot of coverage really quickly. So continuing on this thread of you know being a guest in someone else's code base, have you ever been in an environment where the team that's bringing you in maybe isn't as enthusiastic about having you be part of that process as you would like to? How have you navigated those types of scenarios? Delicately. Having, having somebody look at something you've done and pass judgment on it is crazy uncomfortable. And so like we try to do that with a lot of care. It's interesting. We've we've been on the receiving end of this a couple of times. So usually usually it's us who's being brought in and we're looking at somebody else's code. But there have been a couple of projects we've been on where we were on them long enough that it made sense for somebody else to come in and look at the work we had done. And so I know firsthand just how uncomfortable it is to have somebody do that. So we try to be really, really understanding. And our job is not to point fingers. Our job is not to blame anybody. If we find out that like any career decisions are being made on anybody's behalf based on the recommendations were made, we get really uncomfortable. We come in with the intent of basically the retrospective prime directive from the Agile community of no matter what happened, we're coming in with the assumption that everyone did their best with the resources and knowledge that they had at the time. So if the code that they created is a complete and total mess, then it needed to be that way. It's not our job to kind of impugn that person and say like, what idiot wrote this or anything like that. So that that's it's, that's really important for us to to start as a starting point and make sure that all the team members we're working with understand that and that we might critique the work and we might find ways that the work can be improved, but we're, we try to critique the work and not the individual. And I feel like that's a really critical like first step towards pulling people along because if, if in, anybody feels like they're going to be threatened in any kind of way in terms of like either their reputation, their credibility, their career, their job, they're not going to want you there, air quotes, helping like, cause you're not helping them in that case, right? Like you're hurting them. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's very, it's a very delicate process. And I was curious how people are thinking about that with their teams and how they may or may not discuss that with their other developers on your team that might come in and help those companies and stuff. Cause it's, it's challenging. And I think not everybody has that skill set. Yeah. And we have, we have some members of our team who do a better job than others because we're all human, right? We're all, all on different learning journeys about different kinds of things. But yeah, I think like, you know, small wins, build up trust, recognize the trust has to be built, recognize that you just don't show up with it, right? It's not just, it's, it's not a gift. Don't assume that it's there. You're going to have to earn it. Another kind of related to the, to coming in and being a guest in someone else's code and they have that list and where your team starts off with, you tend to try to take on a certain size of a project early on intent with some intention for why you do that. Most of our sizing 
conversations are more around just logistics for us in terms of scheduling and planning than it is anything about the project. So I think like the minimum that we've created over the years has more to do with just, you know, difficulty scheduling and and planning and and not having to have like one person have knowledge of like eight different code bases kind of thing. So I think like that ends up putting some kind of constraints on the size of, of the work. I wish there were more resources available for teams that can't like you just don't have the budget to hire somebody to help them. I, I do feel like there, there's kind of a gap there. Like I feel like books and podcasts can, can help fill that void. You have video series. I've got a few video courses up on LinkedIn's learning platform, but I, you know, I, I am aware that like, cause I used to work at a small company where it was like three of us. We, we couldn't have afforded, <laughs> we couldn't have afforded hiring another team to help us. Like that was, that was a crazy talk. Right. So I think, our business model itself ends up putting some constraints uh, on the size of the work, but we we do we do still try to make sure that like we're like our help is still accessible. Right, that's good. And I think another angle on that is when you met, you had touched on working with another team and trying to make sure that you get some buy in or acceptance, and you talked about like some small wins. Are there some some good examples of what small wins look like? Because I always worry about when we're approaching a project, the team might want us to work on some big thing. And I'm like, that's great, but we might not get that done for two or three months. So how do we prove that we're a good partner for you sooner? And so are there some things like that that you try to explore as a consultancy? Yeah. Like one really easy small win is just to identify safe to delete cruft. Like my favorite is commented out code. If you've got commented out code, just delete it is my attitude. It's in the source code repository (laughs) and you can even run get blame or praise or whatever you want to call it and see how how old that comment is <laughs> and if it's if it's not like a week old like you can safely safely delete it or even if it is a week old you can safely safely delete it you could still get it back and so like that can be an an easy an easy win another easy win is just making it easy improving the development environment setup because that's something that like we go through when we come into a new project is we're basically like any new developer to your team so we try to point out all the difficulties of getting that environment spun up and we'll make a lot of suggestions around making that dirt simple. So it's, you know, my favorite is like just one command and the environment's up and it might not be the best way to build the environment. It might not be the most efficient way, you know, the, the environment you end up with might not be the, the most efficient one to work with, but if you can get it to like one command and it's built, then that is so much easier than you know, some teams that we worked on over the years where it took a week to get an environment built. Yeah, that, that can be pretty rough for everybody involved in that. It definitely impacts onboarding new hires and stuff. And I think it's, it's one of those things a lot of developers don't always have the time, don't think that they have the time to go back and revisit like their readme, like their setup guide or whatever it's going to be. And, and that stuff changes and not everybody thinks to update that stuff because you haven't dealt with it since the last time you did it. And so... Yeah, I was gonna say, and then it doesn't even have to be a new team member. It could be, it could be like the most senior person in your team. Their laptop dies. That's true. <laughs> I'm always curious about like like the challenge people like. How much anxiety do you have if you knew that I was going to like remove your local code base from your machine, or we throw your laptop out the window and it breaks, and you have to start from scratch? How painful of a process would it be for you to get up and running again? And I think people should actually maybe not throw their laptop out the window, but go through that setup process again before they bring on some new people. As an example, I think that's a good point. Like, oh, you have new hires starting. Maybe consider 
starting from scratch yourself so you can make this smoother for them because it is not a good first week or two experience to just be like in debugging hell trying to figure out why something won't work. Yeah. There's several years ago, I was at a, a CTO summit event and one of the speakers, I, I wish I could remember who it was so I could properly attribute this to them. But he said that on Monday, what he does is he does RMRF into a source directory. Oh, wow. And he builds his art from scratch. Like, and he just feels like his role as CTO on that team is to make sure that it's dead simple to bring new team members on. And by him completely tearing down his dev environment, he's able to provide a check on that. I really like that idea. It should only be as painful as you've allowed that to become. All right. So kind of as we wrap things up, a couple of quick last questions for you. What non-software development related code book do you find yourself most often recommending people in our industry? I think my favorite lately would be uh, Radical Candor. And so like the the whole idea of, of that book is to kind of build a framework for giving people specific and direct feedback immediately and really kind of phrasing it so that you're doing it to help them. And if you see something wrong, you need to tell them about it, but you need to do it without being a jerk. Right. <laughs> and and so like that, that's, that's really helpful. All right. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online outside of your podcast? Uh, there's the Corybytes blog. I, I post there. Follow me on LinkedIn. Very rarely I'll post something there that doesn't make it on the Corybytes blog. And then Twitter, I, I keep a, a kind of a technical focus too, but I'm not just technical. So if you're only, like if, if anybody has a rule about like not following someone who has political thoughts or that sort of thing in their, in their blog, then, then don't follow me. Sometimes I'll, I'll post jokes and other stuff. But yeah, like mo- I would say most of the people I follow are in the software industry. So yeah, those are the, those are the best places to, to kind of keep a pulse. Great. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes. And it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. And it was really cool to see Maintainable spring up in the podcast ecosystem and feel like Legacy Code Rocks wasn't so alone and, and looking at you know this, this sphere of, of software element. So so thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for having me on. Maintain a people.